Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday! Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show, and welcome to my favorite day of the week, First Amendment Friday, and I've got a great reason to cheer, because I've told you before, I thought the Supreme Court had no choice but to take up the ridiculous case out of Colorado, where the Colorado Supreme Court decided to throw Donald John Trump off the primary ballot in Colorado. And I said the Supreme Court cannot not decide this case. They have to take up the case. They have to make a decision. And I frankly can't see any way that the U.S. Supreme Court, which as of a couple of hours ago, has decided to take up the case. They have their Friday conference of the justices, and apparently at least four of them, that's what it takes, four of them decided we've got to hear this case. Now, for all I know, maybe all nine of them said we need to hear this case, but they have decided to take it up. And they're going to do it, well, at least in terms of the Supreme Court, relatively quickly. They have set a date of the 8th of February, just over a month from now. The 5th of February is the deadline for turning in all of the various filings from the lawyers on both sides. And you would think this would be a fairly easy case for them to decide. Can a state Supreme Court, all seven justices in Colorado, appointed by Democrat governors of that state? So you've got partisans. And the decision they made, I guess to their credit, was a 4-3 decision. We're going to throw Donald Trump off the ballot. And if you say, well, how could they justify that? They came up with something that is unjustifiable. They said, we're going to find Donald Trump committed the federal crime of insurrection. And if your first question is, Lars, I hadn't heard that Donald Trump had been accused of the federal crime of insurrection. Well, he hasn't been. Now, the impeachment against Donald Trump after the January 6th riot Uh, the impeachment charge that he was guilty of insurrection, and the Senate acquitted him of that charge. And then the Biden DOJ considered whether or not he was guilty of insurrection. They did charge some other Americans, some of the J6 defendants with insurrection. They did not charge Donald Trump, nor did they do something that prosecutors can also do. Prosecutors can bring a charge against a person or a group of people, and then they can name unindicted co-conspirators and allege that they conspired with the group. Now, in other words, you could take seven guys and you could say, we're going to charge four of them with insurrection, and then we're going to name the other three as unindicted co-conspirators saying they took part in the insurrection. That never happened to Donald Trump either. They didn't charge him as an unindicted, or they didn't mention him as an unindicted co-conspirator being involved in a plot to overthrow the government of the United States. And yet, somehow, the Colorado Supreme Court, without any kind of lower court trial, and remember, the Colorado State Supreme Court is a state court. And what is insurrection? Insurrection is a federal crime. So you say, well, Lars, the federals, the feds, That would be the Department of Justice under the very, very political Merrick Garland. I think the very compromised Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland is about as thoroughly corrupt as the day is long. And I want you to consider this, too. I always like to remind people, we dodged a major bullet 
when Barack Obama wanted to have Merrick Garland named to the U.S. Supreme Court. And it was pointed out, no, you're in the end of your second term. You don't get to name Merrick Garland to the court. That ain't going to happen. And it didn't. And thank God, because Merrick Garland, I think, on the Supreme Court would have been more partisan and more political than even the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg was. But to shortchange this, a couple of hours ago, the U.S. Supreme Court holding its Friday conference, sat down, and ordinarily they would announce on Monday which cases that they had granted what the lawyers call a writ of certiorari for, meaning you file the writ of certiorari, you're asking the court, will you take a look at this case? And the court either says yes or no. They said yes, and they decided to announce their decision on a Friday rather than waiting until Monday because they know the time deadlines are fairly tight and saying all the paperwork has to be in by the 5th of February, and we'll hear oral arguments on the 8th of February. And then there are two possibilities. The Supreme Court could decide that Colorado's Supreme Court was way out of line, acted unconstitutionally for all kinds of good reasons, or not. You say, well, both possibilities are there. Yeah, they are. But think about this. Would the U.S. Supreme Court take up this case and then decide... Every state that wants to throw Donald Trump off the ballot can do so. And that's a relevant question right now, because in Illinois and Massachusetts just uh, yesterday, there were filings in court to try to throw Donald Trump off the ballot there. There are a total of 16 states where they're considering legal challenges to throw Trump off the court. If the U.S. Supreme Court decides it's that states are allowed to tell their voters, you're not allowed to vote for this guy. And not just in the in the general election this this November, but this has to do with Colorado's primary election. Now, what happens in a primary? The parties, Democrat and Republican, and if the other parties can come up with enough votes and enough support, they can run a candidate as well. Although right now, America has two major political parties. People complain about that to me all the time. They say, I wish we had three parties or four or five or six. No, you don't. Take a look at Israel. I mean, I don't dislike Israel, but their political system is lunacy. They've got about a dozen different major parties and a whole bunch of little teeny tiny minor parties in a country of only about 10 or 11 million people. And believe me, it is a political mess. If you think our political system is a mess, having a dozen major political parties means that when you get, in in the case of Israel, their Knesset, in the case of us, our Congress when you say, how do you decide how things are run? Well, in America, either Republicans or Democrats have a majority in the House or the Senate. And the majority party in that body gets to decide you know, who's on the committees, who's the chairman, which bills get heard. The House Speaker has an amazing amount of power. So would that be a good idea here? If you had half a dozen major political parties, meaning parties with, you know, five or 10 percent of the votes uh, or five or 10 percent of the members, can you imagine trying to draw together some kind of coalition to get to 51 percent to decide who even runs the House of Representatives, let alone which bills get hurt? But I think it's great news to get back to what the Supreme Court decided. They have decided as of a couple of hours ago that they're going to hear this case. They're going to hear it in just over a month. The paperwork has to be in in one month on the 5th of February. The lawyers will have to present their arguments. And this is going to be amazing to watch Colorado try to stand up and defend the idea. We are allowed as a state to tell the people of our state, 
you're not allowed to vote for a candidate. We won't even put his name on the ballot. You are forbidden to vote for Donald Trump. If that's where politics has reached in America, we're in big trouble, folks, because you've got people in power who say we're going to stay in power by telling the people you don't have the right to vote for an alternative candidate. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that ain't America. And I'm fairly confident, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm confident that the Supreme Court has but one choice, and that is to say states aren't allowed to tell the citizens who they're allowed to vote for. Glad to be with you, always glad to take your calls, and especially on a First Amendment Friday. 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at lawrencelarson.com and check me out on Instagram as well. It's First Amendment Friday. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on First Amendment Friday, my favorite day of the week, because we open up the phone lines and every subject is fair game. At 866-HEY-LARS, that's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. The most recent tranche of documents from Jeffrey Epstein's case, this is specifically the case in which Virginia Jeffrey was, uh, had filed a, a civil case against Jeffrey Epstein for defamation. Uh, he's now dead. I think murdered and not suicide, but I've said that before. And now this week, we've had three days of release of documents. That case with Jeffrey Epstein dead, as I said, I think he was murdered rather than, uh, being a, a victim of suicide. But the disgusting behavior of this guy, and the fact that he wasn't prosecuted more thoroughly much, much earlier than he ever was. Consider this. The New York Post says that one of the documents released today, a man roped in, he was a driver, a roped into Jeffrey Epstein's sordid world, described how he'd been paid $200 each for dropping off young girls at Epstein's mansion. I think this was in Florida. And admitted he knew that the twisted financier was having three-way sex with his girlfriend and Ghislaine Maxwell. This is the kind of disgusting stuff that was going on, which makes it, I think, even worse that there were authorities in Florida that knew about Jeffrey Epstein. They knew what he was doing. The Palm Beach police put together a rock-solid case against him. It got handed off to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and it got pled down to almost nothing, almost no punishment at all. This guy described how he was a driver. He was dating a young lady. That young lady was having sex with Jeffrey Epstein. That's disgusting enough. And then every time he'd drop a young lady off at Jeffrey Epstein's house, even if nothing ever happened with the young lady, that he would get $200 in cash. That's the kind of behavior that Jeffrey Epstein was doing in a way that wasn't exactly secret. Not if you're, you've got this working deal with a limo driver to drop girls off at your house. These are children. These are children who are being sexually used and abused and assaulted by Jeffrey Epstein. And there were so many people involved, it doesn't even seem that Jeffrey Epstein thought he had to keep his activities secret because he'd get away with it. I want to mention that tomorrow is the anniversary of 2021, January 6, 2021. 
And, of course, a lot of us have different points of view about what happened on that day. Were minor crimes committed? Yeah. Anybody murdered? Well, Ashley Babbitt, in my view, was murdered on January 6, 2021. And I think she was murdered uh, by a Capitol Police officer. Well, now Judicial Watch has filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the U.S. government on behalf of the family of Ashley Babbitt, who is a military veteran. The woman fatally shot inside the Capitol on January 6th. The lawsuit filed on behalf of Babbitt's estate and her husband, Aaron, in the Southern District of California, because that's where she made her home, brings forth multiple accounts against the government, including assault and battery, negligence, negligent supervision, discipline, and retention of Lieutenant Burt. The man identified as the guy who shot Ashley Babbitt to death, who was never charged with anything. Never charged, never found guilty of anything, negligent training and wrongful death. The lawsuit says that when Babbitt was shot, no members of Congress were in the lobby. The suit adds that then-Lieutenant Michael Byrd was not in uniform that day, did not identify himself as a police officer, or otherwise make his presence known to Ashley Babbitt. Lieutenant Byrd did not give any warnings or commands before shooting her dead. The lawsuit seeks $30 million plus costs and interests according to law and all further relief to which plaintiffs may be justified. So maybe we finally get some kind of answer as to the death of Ashley Babbitt and why Lieutenant Michael Byrd never faced criminal charges after shooting her for, at the time this happened on this program, I questioned that while I'm a big supporter of the police, I said, look, the police can't just shoot you dead. There has to be a reason. And generally, the reason that a police officer might pull a gun and shoot somebody is because they're presenting a threat. And I kept asking people, what threat was she presenting? Well, she was about to enter the building. I said, well, you know, I told callers, based on that, the Capitol Police could have shot everybody, all nine or 900 or 950 people who entered the building. You can't, as a cop, simply say, I'm going to shoot you to death because you walked into a building. If you're presenting a threat, you can shoot somebody to stop the threat. And the minute the threat is stopped, you need to stop shooting. That's not what happened with Ashley Babbitt. She, I think, was murdered, except the guy who pulled the trigger never faced charges of any kind, and I'll make it clear. He was never charged. He was never tried. And in fact, I don't think there was much of an investigation. I think the Capitol Police are corrupt. And, of course, they were being run by Nancy Pelosi, so that shouldn't surprise anyone. Let's go to uh, Richard. Hey, Richard, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hey, well, I've got two things, Lars. First of all, um, as you know, my wife Natasha is Ukrainian. Yes. And she's not real happy with Donald Trump because of his position about Ukraine. But even she thinks the Colorado ruling and the Maine ruling is absolutely ridiculous, that our judges should not be limiting what is on the ballots. Love or hate Trump. You have to trust the voters. You cannot let politicians tell us who we can and cannot vote for. I, and, and, uh, and I applaud her for taking that position. What's her problem with Trump's position on Ukraine? Well, she has family in Ukraine, and she's very proud of her home country, though she's now a very proud American citizen. Um, and she wants Ukraine to win the war. She, want, she wants Ukraine to fight, and she wants the United States to help. Uh, Ukraine financially and with military weapons. Uh, for and how course, long and to toward what end, that. and where is the American national security interest? Well, what she believes is that um, helping Ukraine uh, helps to make Russia less of a threat to NATO and other European countries. Um, she thinks that's what the American security interest is. 
um, as well as, you know, setting the tone, going all the way back to Obama's red line and uh, looking at uh, China and Ukraine. Just you globally. mean the red line that Obama never enforced? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, we need to show she believes that uh, we are strong allies and, and we can be depended upon to defend our friends. And between uh, all of the mistakes that have been made uh, in Afghanistan, as you pointed out, with Biden and uh, um, um, Taiwan, you know, appearing to waver and, and all these other things, uh, she thinks, and, and I agree with her, that that it would build our credibility up if we continue to support Ukraine. But Okay, but, you know, but then, then what issue, do we jump into every single conflict, whether we have a defense agreement with that country or not? We certainly do with NATO, and I've got my own criticisms of NATO, and we have an agreement yeah. with Taiwan, but it, do, do we jump into every single uh, issue where one country attacks another country because it would be good for us in some way? No, but when we do, we well, need but to then win. How do we decide which ones we jump into and which ones we don't? Well, that's what we have elections for. To pick well, the those, those are a little slow, and, and the world moves very fast. Yeah. I don't, I'm only asking because, do you remember why the world ended up at war in World War I? What, what touched it off? It was an assassination of the Archduke something or other, if Ferdinand. I recall. Yeah, Ferdinand. Yeah, like and the uh, alliances all... <laughs> felt like dominoes and, and we ended up at war see and that's what i'm worried yeah. about if the u.s says we're going to yeah. get into every single conflict anywhere on the globe where it'd be the right thing because we think these are good people so we should jump in and send yeah. weapons and money and the other concern i've got is i think that i think ukraine as we know because of the biden crime family is a thoroughly corrupt place do, do you have any great confidence that the tens of billions of dollars going in there uh, that at least some of it is not being diverted to the very oligarchs that run Ukraine right now? Well, taking my wife's side on, on that... I, I know. It's a um, tough spot. Yeah, um, taking, taking her side on that point, I, I believe that, yes, Ukraine has been horrifically corrupt. It is still very corrupt. But I think the arc of the country's evolution um, is going in the right direction along those lines, and we need to facilitate that. We need to continue to... Um, uh, help Ukraine along its arc of reform, which I think it has come across. I I agree with Hold you, Lars. Can I don't you think tell me where they're reforming? In. They seem to have become more corrupt all the way up to the beginning of the war. And I don't see any sign they're becoming less corrupt. Where do you see the reform? Well, I, I get a lot of Ukrainian news because of my wife, and there are a lot of people that are getting arrested over there because of corruption. A lot of people are, are getting they arrested also getting arrested they because don't. they oppose the current leadership of the country, which sounds, well, we're going to have to continue this conversation another day. Richard, thanks for the call. The Lars Larson Show. So you don't have to. Bringing the political heat. He's Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on First Amendment Friday. Let me throw a couple of things at you, and then I'll get back to your phone calls and emails. Number one, should illegal aliens get taxpayer-funded sex change operations? 
And if you say, Lars, they've only been here a while. Well, in the last three years, we've got about nine million of these people who have uh, flowed, you know, flowed across our southern border thanks to Joe Biden. In the month of December alone, there were 303,000, bringing the total to around nine million. Some have gone back, but a very small number. The vast majority have simply been turned loose inside the United States. And what did California do? California's got major league financial problems right now. They're running a $62 billion deficit. And yet, despite that, the state of California is now planning to provide taxpayer-funded health care, including sex change operations, under what's known as Medi-Cal, which is the state insurance program for medical insurance for poor people. And they say the program is going to cover hormone therapy and surgical procedures that bring primary and secondary gender characteristics into conformity with the individual's identified gender including ancillary services, hair removal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Fancy medical talk for, yes, we will do sex change operations for illegal aliens. Now, according to this, May of 22, roughly 700,000 illegal aliens in the state between the ages of 26 and 49 already qualify for full coverage as of January 1, four days ago. California State Senator Maria Alana Durazo said that the state's latest move to expand the program in 2015, then-Governor Jerry Brown signed a law allowing illegal alien children to qualify for Medi-Cal, and Governor Gavin Newsom expanded that coverage for illegal aliens 19 to 25, and now they want to expand it to cover illegals up to the age of 50, and part of that coverage will be free sex change operations. I'd love to hear the naysayer who thinks that's a sensible idea. Then I got these, I got a couple of emails I want to share. Kevin wrote in, Lars, yesterday you pondered about whether or not there was enough evidence of whether hiring a Harvard lawyer is worth it. There's an old saying, uh, saying, a good lawyer knows the law, a great lawyer knows the judge. As of 2022, 18% of federal judges are graduates of an Ivy League college, which means you have a very good chance that a Harvard lawyer knows the judge. And Phil wrote in, Lars, thanks for your guest the other night, who so eloquently explained where our rights come from, God, and not from government, and that they can't be removed by the government. Then listening to the lady caller afterward, who said our rights come from social norms, and that she doesn't believe in a Christian God made me feel so sad. This vital understanding is so critical for Americans to know, and our so-called education system is failing this country. Thanks for the great show. We'll be listening on WINS out of Lansing, Michigan, signed Phil. Phil, thanks a lot for that. Let's go to Alabama and talk to Ray. Ray, welcome to First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? You know, we're talking about uh, Colorado and a bunch of other states trying to keep Trump off the ballot, yep. which I think is ridiculous. They know they can't beat him. They're in panic mode, trying to do anything they can to not have to run against him. All true. But on the other hand, as far as I know, each state is allowed to run their election how they choose. So who's to say they can't? I'll tell you who, who's to say they can't. In the U.S. Constitution, Ray, you are right. States can decide how to run their elections. And there is one way and one way only that is spelled out in the federal Constitution. And do you know what that is? You have to take the idea to your state legislature and say, we'd like to run the elections this way. And then you have to get a majority of people in the state house and a majority of the people in the state Senate to vote for that change. And then you have to get the governor to sign it. Now, they, every state can change its election laws that way. 
What the Constitution did not say is anytime four Democrat-appointed Supreme Court justices in Colorado want to take Donald Trump off the ballot, they're allowed to do it. In fact, by, by exclusion, if the federal Constitution says there's one way to change the rules for an election in a state, it's to go to the state legislature, pass a law, and have it signed by the governor and signed into law. That's the way. It doesn't say the governor can decide. It doesn't say the secretary of state or the director of elections or some judge, federal or state, gets to decide. It says the people's representatives decide how the elections run in all of the 50 states, 58 if you happen to be an Obama fan. So that's the one way they can do it. Now, if Colorado, if the state legislature went completely crazy in Colorado and they said, let's hold a one-day special session and let's pass a law that says the Republicans cannot run Donald Trump on the ballot. In theory, they could do it. The problem is that that law would become what lawyers call a bill of attainder. Ray, do you know that um, they used to do this in England, which is why the founders forbid it in the Constitution. They said you can't have a bill that only applies to one one person. You know, in other words, you can't pass legislation that either benefits just one person or hurts one person. So, for instance, the uh, the uh, Alabama legislature cannot pass a call, a bill saying let's forbid a, any guy named Ray who calls the Lars Larson show more than once in a year. Let's forbid him from owning a telephone. They couldn't pass that. That would be a bill of attainder. So you're right. The, the federal constitution puts it in the hands of the state, but it says only one body in each state can decide that, and that is the state legislature. As far as I know, Colorado's legislature has not passed any laws forbidding, uh, you know, Donald Trump from being on the ballot. And I very much appreciate your call. Let's go to Mark. Hey, Mark, welcome to the Lars Larson Show on First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Thank you for taking my call, Lars. I you appreciate bet. it. First of all, uh, you're right. And the, the using the 14th Amendment does not have anything to do with the president. They can't do that. It, had, it basically was put in effect because of uh, civil, the Civil War, and they did not want to get uh, Confederate people becoming congressmen and senators. And True. that's why they did that. It has nothing True. to do with the president. So they can't use that. Now, what, what, what gets me is that, Okay, so if they do this, and they, as you said before, they finally go ahead and and get him off the ballot, can they not still write him in? Well, I think based on each of the states and how they handle it, as I understand it, Mark, both Colorado and Maine have said not only are we taking him off the ballot for the primary, but we won't count any of the ballots where somebody marks in a write-in vote for Trump. So they've that that that's, that's a pretty effective ban. So if they say you go ahead and write them in, we aren't we aren't going to count them, and and so you could have uh, a majority of Republicans in Colorado say I'm casting a ballot for Donald Trump. They say, well, that'll be one of the ballots we won't be counting. This is how thoroughly corrupt this whole idea is. And exactly. God bless them. Exactly. The GOP the GOP of Colorado has already said if they if this stays, and I think the Supreme Court's going to throw it out. But if it stays, we will instead hold either a convention, a state convention, which they're allowed to do, or have party caucuses, and that will decide uh, who, what Colorado's primary vote goes to. And, and I think they've done that to say, you go ahead and take them off the ballot in the primary, we won't take part in the primary. Because remember, the Republican Party and the Democrat Party are both private organizations. 
They happen to hold their, they, in most states where they have primaries, in all states where they have primaries, they, they use a state election to be able to decide who that private organization, the Republican Party, the Democrat Party, chooses as their nominee. But the Republican Party of Colorado is saying, you're going to take us, take our, our top candidate off the ballot, then we just won't take part in your primary. That's not right. I, I'm sorry, but that's not right. That's not the way this country was brought up. You know, it, it, it's, it's just like listening to, to Joe Biden, his speech this afternoon. Oh, God. It got me so upset oh, because he repeated over and over again that our democracy, our democracy, uh, 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 it's a crime against our democracy. We are not a democracy. No, we're not. We never have been. If you look at the Constitution, never once does it admit that we are a democracy. There's a difference. We are a federal federalist republic with some small elements of democracy, including the right to vote for the candidate of your choice. And Joe Biden and the Democrats don't believe in that. Mark, thanks for the call. Coming up in just a moment, what tech policies do we need to put in place in the new year? We're going to talk to our favorite tech. drawn in the sand. He's the one that crosses it. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on this First Amendment Friday. I'll get back to your calls and emails shortly. I want to talk to James Cernowski, though, good friend of the program, senior policy analyst in technology and innovation at Americans for Prosperity. James, Happy New Year to you and welcome back. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year to you, too. Ordinarily, James, when I hear the idea of we need to have policies, which generally mean restrictions, in order to foster innovation, that sounds like a, a contradiction in terms, especially when it comes to technology. Uh, what, what exactly is going to be considered as Congress uh, gets back to work, whatever they call work, in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, that's a great question. Who it remains to be seen just how much work will get done in Congress this year. As you well know, it's an election year, so... Um, all bets are off in terms of uh, what, 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 what might get done there exactly. But I think that there's definitely some good opportunities for Congress to go and continue building upon some of the work that they were getting done towards the back end of last year, uh, now going into this year. Um, so I think that primarily the name of the game is artificial intelligence. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's excited about it or worried about it, depending on who you ask. Um, but there's a lot of great opportunities there, I think, to continue to learn more about artificial intelligence and also hold our, our – um, our agencies from the Biden administration accountable because he issued his executive order late last year on artificial intelligence. And a lot of those things that were inside that executive order for things that the agencies themselves have to be doing is going to be coming up on some deadlines now here over the next several months. So it's making sure that they don't overstep their bounds and Congress goes in, going and fulfilling its oversight role on these agencies to make sure that they are not going and killing this, this promising technology in the cradle here. Oh, come on, James. The Biden administration overstep bounds and do things that aren't allowed in the law or anything like that? Yeah, perish the thought. It never happens, does it? Yeah, I mean, you know, between their uh, SEC on how they treated the crypto to their FTC and their blatant targeting of the tech industry, more broadly speaking, you name it, this administration is going after it in some rhyme or fashion. And it makes it that much more important that Congress, um, you know, again, tries to hold them accountable here because, 
this is just one area that is too critical when we're looking to who gets to go and control the next decade and a half easily, a generation's worth of tech leadership. It comes from who wins this AI race right here. So, so what are some of the things that they've said that the, uh, you know, the, the, the folks pushing AI, because I can see some, some really wonderful things that come out of good use of artificial intelligence. I think of it like a, a knife or, a, or fire or, or nuclear power. They all have good uses. They all have bad uses as well and abusive uses and maybe even criminal uses. What have they done and what have they told the tech industry about where they're supposed to go with AI? Yeah, um, right now, I mean, it's been a lot of finger-wagging and getting voluntary uh, commitments from the companies themselves that they've then gone and turned around and say, we will hold them to those voluntary standards, which then makes it not sound all that voluntary after all, huh, Lars? <laughs> you think? Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's really been the biggest thing that they've been doing. It's been a lot of exploring and trying to get themselves up to speed and educated on the technology and topic. So, thankfully, they haven't been able to go and do too much damage just yet. But sometimes the saber-rattling is enough as is. Um, when you're going and having people signing letters talking about likening AI to, uh, you know, nuclear war and pandemics, or you have the president writing that executive order uh, when he was just shortly thereafter watching the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movie that has the AI arch nemesis enemy there kind of uh, serving as the main character along Tom Cruise. So, I mean, again, there's been a lot of negative stuff that's been kind of like shoved to the forefront. But meanwhile, there's a lot of positive things happening on the undergirds there, right? You're seeing some really promising developments in the healthcare sector for AI with it going and, and helping, you know, those short patients with their recovery because they're wearing AI-powered trousers. You have people that are going and um, using AI to scan retinal data to go and better diagnose whether or not a person might have a heart condition, which is one of the leading uh, causes of death for men. Um, so there's a lot of really positive things there in the educational context that can go and help kids um, learn how to get to the right answer as opposed to just telling them they're, they are right or wrong. So there's definitely a lot of very positive things out here. But I think what's even more important is making sure that we also go and hold the European Union accountable here because they've been egregiously bad with targeting the U.S. tech sector more broadly speaking, whether it's going after Elon Musk's X, formerly known as Twitter, or going after Meta with fines up the wazoo, or going after Apple. Um, they're also going after artificial intelligence as well. They have the artificial uh, the EU's AI Act, right? And that is actually a really cumbersome, restrictive piece of regulation um, that's going to go and stymie the efforts there. But their entire point is to go and use their regulations to go and strangle American companies, right? So this is some place where members of Congress and this administration need to stand up to this blatant abuse of power from the European Union. Could we could we feed the federal budget into chat GPT and say, hey, figure us out a balanced budget and, and see what the output would be? Because uh, you know, I, I I guess when I see what Europe's trying to do, the United States, it just seems like they're a bunch of grifters that say, let's find a way to strangle American companies and then we'll get to find them and we'll get a bunch of cash like they're, they're They are just a bunch of grifters. And I don't want us to do that, that either. I also uh, but I have this fear on the other side of things. Um, I'm, I'm not anxious to start regulating everything and ev anything and everything, which is what the U.S. government seems to like to do. But because. Mm -hmm. If we hold our development of AI back, I'm not convinced that the rest of the world is going to hold back. So America ends up with this severely constrained AI and the rest of the world, including some of the bad actors on the world, end up with AI that's much more capable. That doesn't seem like it ends well for us. No, not at all. And like I said, that's why it's so important that the United States leads and wins this race to AI, because whoever does 
is basically getting themselves a generation's worth of tech leadership and billions upon billions of dollars in economic activity. You're talking about doubling worker, for, uh, worker productivity uh, just as a general level, which then goes and helps make more money, and then a general um, increase in GDP in the United States of at least 1% to 2%, which is at least $250 billion a year. So there's a lot of massive economic impact that AI can have, but it relies on everybody getting it done right here in the United States, showing people the way, because the rest of the world does not think about this right. They have this wrong-headed approach here, and the people that are going to benefit from it are those bad actors that want to use it for bad purposes. Um, but we shouldn't go and be blind to that. We should go and embrace that challenge, and that's what the United States excels at, is going and facing those challenges head-on and innovating our way around those challenges that get presented to us and solving those kinds of problems. And that's why it is so critical that we are the leaders here at the end of the day as we're looking into 2024. I'm talking to James Zernowski from Americans for Prosperity. You know what I wish would happen? I wish the biggest, I mean, that a bunch of the actors within the tech field would say, hey, Congress, you don't need to regulate us. We're going to come up with some self-regulation, and it'll be completely transparent, and we'll agree to operate within these bounds. And anybody who doesn't want to follow, you know, our recommended code of conduct or whatever, you know, then then you don't do business with them. That would seem like a good way to regulate, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. And make no mistake, the industry has done a lot of self-regulation to this point in terms of instituting standards for how they're going to go and develop their products and um, vet their products before rolling them out to the end consumer um, this is something that I think people have, like, misconstrued when it comes to AI. Uh, they treat it like it's the wild, wild west, that there's no regulations that apply to it. But the reality is that there's a lot of existing laws that are already on the books that would apply to an AI. Absolutely. That's James Zernowski from Americans for Prosperity. James, Happy New Year, and thank you very much. The Lars Larson Show. Looking for a new way to give? It's Friday, Friday. Friday on my mind. Focus is Friday. Oh, Friday, Friday. Yeah, it's Friday. Friday. Woo! Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday. Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. There's an extremist movement that does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy. All of us are being asked right now, what will we do to maintain our democracy? History's watching. The world is watching. The most important, our children and grandchildren will hold us responsible. That's Joe Biden in his newest campaign ad, and clearly he's on the attack and condemning about half of all Americans. Welcome back to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. I want to get to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. But let me tell you this. Monday, I'll be analyzing Joe Biden's speech in Pennsylvania today, his first major speech of the 2024 election. He chose Montgomery County Community College in Bluebell, which is near Valley Forge. And it comes just one day before the third third anniversary of what even the mainstream media, the legacy media, is calling the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Yeah, because that's the charge they're going to lay at Donald Trump's feet. Say you engaged in insurrection. Really? 
Why didn't the DOJ charge him with insurrection? They didn't. Why didn't the FBI find evidence of insurrection? They didn't. But the Colorado Supreme Court, they decided Donald Trump is guilty of insurrection. No trial needed. We'll simply move on to ripping him off the ballot in Colorado. But the other development just a few hours ago, the U.S. Supreme Court has decided it will hear the case of Colorado removing Donald Trump from the primary election ballot in the state of Colorado. And uh, they're going to hear that just over a month from now. The lawyers will have to have all their filings in by the 5th of February because there is a tight timeline to decide. And will the U.S. Supreme Court decide that Donald Trump is guilty or can be removed by the uh, by the Supreme Court of the state of Colorado. By the way, all seven justices appointed by Democrats in the state of Colorado. No partisanship there at all. But on this program, you know that we love naysayers. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. And John is on the line on First Amendment Friday as a naysayer. John, what is it that you and I disagree about that makes you a naysayer? Well, I think the uh, the Colorado and Maine could win in the Supreme Court. And my conclusion is, well, you remember Merrick Garland? You might want to arrest a few insurrectionist Supreme Court justices and tell the rest of them that they might not have any police protection at their homes if they uh, vote the wrong way. So you think he might actually go that route and say he would threaten the U.S. Supreme Court? But legally, John, even when they make crazy decisions, and occasionally the Supreme Court does make crazy decisions, in my view, they have to have a legal basis for it. What are they going to decide is the legal basis that a state like Colorado could have a candidate's name removed from the ballot so the people of that state are not allowed to vote for him? What would they use as the legal basis for that? Well, like I said, I heard uh, um, a Garland talk uh, the other day, and he was going after insurrection. I could see the FBI raiding the Supreme Court building and well, dragging it, out the insurrection. Except for this, John, here's here's the mystery for you. Let's, Merrick let's Garland a, is his. Pl- stop, Marla. Who would stop him? Merrick Garland. Hold on, but Merrick Garland. What would stop him? Uh, I think. Do you think that Jack Smith, the special counsel who's currently trying to prosecute Donald Trump, not very successfully, but he's trying. Do you think that if Jack Smith thought he had a case of insurrection, he would have brought federal charges of insurrection against Donald Trump? I, I'm not concerned about that. I'm surprised. Concerned about what they do to other people. Uh, they might not do it against the president, but. If they uh, did that, I think there's still, what, 40-some-odd percent of the country, which is Democrat, would uh, would go along with it. And the other 60 percent would stand up and say, you're not doing this. John, it's an interesting argument, and I appreciate a good naysayer always. 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Let's go to Everett. Hey, Everett, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hey, Everett. Everett, are you there? Okay. I'll tell you what, Everett missed his opportunity. I've got a little confession to make to you on this First Amendment Friday. I am pro-choice. And no, if you're thinking that's the baby-killing kind of pro-choice that the Democrats love to push for, no. I'm not that kind of pro-choice, not at all. I am pro-life. 
I favor letting Americans choose which candidates they want in the race for president, and ultimately a big part of deciding who becomes the next president. Unfortunately, the Democrat Party chooses the tactics of Tanya Harding. Now, do you remember Tanya Harding, the figure skater? If you can't beat your opponent legitimately, you get your friends to kneecap him. That's what they're trying to do to Donald Trump. Lawsuits in 16 states have called for removing Donald Trump from the primary election ballot. At Colorado's Supreme Court, they did exactly that less than a month ago. In that 4-3 to three decision, the all-Democrat-appointed justices of the Colorado Supreme Court found Trump guilty of insurrection without even holding a trial or hearing evidence. The state of Maine went even more informal than that. Its Secretary of State held an administrative hearing, not even a court hearing. And then, like the Queen of Hearts in Alice's Adventures, sentence first, verdict afterward. Off with his head. In Illinois and Massachusetts this week, groups of Democrat voters have actually filed formal court petitions demanding that their fellow voters, fans of Donald Trump, be forbidden to even see the name of the evil orange man on their ballots. And liberals call Americans radical. Join me. I got to tell you something. This is the craziest situation, but I'm glad to see that the U.S. Supreme Court just a few hours ago is going to hear this case. And frankly, I can't imagine a legal way that they could justify what the state of Colorado has done or what the state of Maine is doing or what the states of Massachusetts and Illinois are contemplating doing. They are simply saying we want to take Americans' right to choose a presidential candidate away from them. And that, frankly, is not America. And in Joe Biden's first campaign ad, the ad I played a portion of just a moment ago, his ad calls millions and millions of Americans extremists. He says that, and, and by the way, just so that you didn't miss his point, you couldn't see the video in that ad, but he actually shows pictures of Trump banners. So it's very, very clear who he's labeling. Well, Donald Trump got tens of millions of votes. And Biden in it says there's an extremist movement that does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy. At the very least, Joe Biden is going to get called out by all of us who understand that America is not a democracy. America is a federalist republic, meaning we have 50 states that are somewhat sovereign. We have a federal government that, at least in theory, is supposed to be constrained within its enumerated powers, and everything else goes to the states. Now, I know that some of you are going to say, well, if everything goes to the states, then they can take Donald Trump off the ballot. No, they can't, because another part of the U.S. Constitution says each and every one of the 50 states can decide what election laws it wants. But that decision has to be made by the people's representatives in their state house. I mean, in uh, uh, Nebraska, they only have one chamber, but in most states, two chambers, a house and a Senate. You want to change the election laws of your state? Go right ahead. You can do it very easily. Have your legislators meet, have them pass a bill through the house, the Senate, and get the governor's signature, and you're off to the races. Coming up in a moment, the 2024 Golden Globes are going to kick off their award ceremony Sunday night with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon set to present who's likely to win. We'll talk to our friend Christian Toto, our movie guy, coming up next. When...
You can't fix stupid. Stupid is forever. But you surely can vote them out. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And join me in welcoming in this new year our movie guy, Christian Toto, the host of the Hollywood and Toto podcast. How are you doing, Christian? And Happy New Year. I'm good. Thanks for the uh, well wishes. Right back at you. You know, it's funny that I didn't see any of the mainstream media when they were talking about the Jeffrey Epstein files and all that run that great bite from, and it's a couple of minutes long, but it's uh, Ricky Gervais, uh, you know, really, really getting under the skin of a bunch of Hollywood types a few years ago. when he said, you all know Epstein. Now you're going to have to go find your own plane. And, and it was absolutely brilliant at the time. And it's, it aged very, very well, to put it that way. Yeah, it's been fascinating. You know, I just posted a story at my site, uh, Tim Dillon is a comedian. He's very funny. He's rebellious. He's a little bit like Howard Stern back in the day, when you know, a, a truth teller in a way, even if you don't always agree with him. And he was making fun of the Epstein case, and specifically looking at the media and how they're saying every every news report that mentioned that Clinton was was name checked fifty plus times, they would say, "Well, that doesn't mean anything. It's it, there's no there's no assumption that he's guilty." I mean. It's almost like they're trying to protect him. And instead of just doing their due diligence and digging deeper into the story and seeing if there's any there there, all they cared about was protecting him. And and Tim Dillon called it out. It's just beautiful. Well, and especially when you consider that Bill Clinton's, I always describe him as the unindicted rapist of Juanita Broderick. And if he wants to sue me for defamation on that, I'd love to have the, uh, the, the deposition of him in that case, because I believe there's a case he did rape Juanita Broderick, and then he molested Kathleen Willey before you even get to Paula Jones or Monica Lewinsky or any of the rest of those. But would it surprise anybody that if you put that guy 26 different times on the Lolita Express, the uh, jet that was owned by the now late, I think, murdered Jeffrey Epstein, I think he was killed because... He knew too much about too many powerful people, and somebody decided he's got to go. So they got rid of him. But would it surprise anybody that, as one of the young ladies testified in court, he likes them young? Speaking of young ladies, would it surprise anybody if if Bill Clinton, uh, unindicted rapist, was also somebody who uh, Jeffrey Epstein might have provided with sexual favors from underage girls? Wouldn't surprise me one little bit. And it shouldn't surprise the people in the mainstream media. Well, no, you're right. And also, I always wonder when these stories, when stories like this break, are there any reporters staking out where Bill Clinton lives uh, to get a comment, uh, asking his press people for, you know, reaction, things like that? Like, that's pretty standard operating uh, procedure, right? You know, you kind of get get their comments. At the very least, they give them a chance to defend themselves. And then you say, listen, let's get an investigative team together. Let's do some digging. We've got we've got some some interesting bits that we can follow through. Let's find out more. This is a an American president. He may have done something unbelievably ghoulish. We need to find out, and the public deserves to know that. None of those questions, none of those thoughts are in the heads of any journalist today in the mainstream media, and that is just so sad. It is, because I've seen so many examples, even, even small 
uh, you know, uh, election campaigns where somebody's running for office. And when they smell blood in the water, they'll show up and sometimes for Republicans, sometimes for Democrats, and they stake out their locations. They stake out their public appearances and they, they shout questions and everything else. And Bill Clinton is apparently just completely unbothered by any of the stuff. They don't hang out in Chappaqua and try to get his comments. And, and that's about it. They're treating him like an elder statesman. Well, maybe Jimmy Carter deserves the elder statesman treatment, but I don't think the horny hick from Arkansas does. Let's talk about what's going to happen to the Golden Globes. Is this going to be another year where we talk next week about how few people tur- turned it on to even watch it? You know, the, the, the whole Golden Globes in general uh, they've been under attack. There's been questions about the diversity of the membership. They've changed things. They've expanded. They've tried to, uh, you know, address issues. It certainly had one one black eye after another in the, in the public space. Having said all that, do we care? I don't think so. Uh, the, the Golden Globes over the years have been a little bit more fun, a little bit more footloose and fancy free. And I will say that they picked a host who is lesser known but it's really funny and is really upbeat and positive for the most part. It's Joe Coy, and I really applaud them for picking him. Now, a lot of people didn't want the job, honestly, so there's that. But uh, I do think with these shows, you need someone who's more of a unifier, who's more optimistic, and who's not going to just be partisan and cool and cold. And that is nothing like Joe Coy. So I think he might do a nice job. But as far as the winners go... I think it'll be Barbie in Best Picture in the musical category, and Oppenheimer in the dramatic category, and they, you know they famously split those in two. So I don't think it'll give us much insight into the Oscar Oscars, but that's just my quick snapshot of the event. I'm talking to Christian Toto, the host of the Hollywood and Toto podcast. So Christian, let's talk movies at least for a moment. Uh, what about this new movie called Night Swim? Because I know start with start from zero because I know exactly zero about it. Well, you know how Jaws made us afraid to go into the water? This one's trying to make us afraid to go into our pool. It's basically a movie about a family that moves into a home with a haunted pool. It's based on a short film. And I have to say, I marginally enjoyed it. It doesn't have big scares. It's only PG-13, so they kind of ratchet down the horror. And while it has some flaws, I thought the focus on the family in question was interesting and endearing. Uh, It shows the power of family, uh, about fatherhood as well. I like those themes. It's not great. And I have to say, when I was in the screening of the film, there was some snickering around me. I was not laughing. Others in the audience were chuckling a time or two. Not a good sign. The critics are roasting the film. I am an exception here. I found it passable, but... It's certainly not one I'd say rush out and see. Maybe you want to wait. See, I keep hoping for these lower budget films, the ones that don't necessarily include all the big, big names and the big money will actually make it because, you know, I agree with one of my producers, Joel, who says, you know, why don't you make uh, 10 movies for $100 million Mm -hmm. instead of one movie for $100 million? Well, I I think that's true. And by the way, I don't know if you we've talked about this because we've been on vacations and such. The movie Godzilla Minus One is fading from theaters. And everyone was saying how wonderful it is. And I thought, a Godzilla movie. Like, as a kid, I loved them. But Godzilla, come on. It's, it's called Godzilla Minus One. And you know what? It's flat out excellent. It's wonderful. And even my wife, who doesn't watch Godzilla movies or Star Wars or anything sci-fi-ish, she loved it, too. So if you have a chance to see it, I would see that one. That one's a really solid movie. And I'm as shocked as everyone else. Any other recommendations as we head into the weekend? You know, it's going to be tough sledding. This is a, a quiet time for for movies. They don't put out the best of the best this time of the year. It's just a thing. January is rather quiet, so just know that going in. Um, you, I, 
if you haven't seen Wonka, it's really enjoyable. I was cynical about the project. It's doing quite good. well in theaters right now. Yeah, and uh, it's it's sweet. It's optimistic. It's upbeat. It's not woke at all. And Hugh Grant as an Oompa Loompa, it's a score, man. So I, I, okay, would, so tell I would check me, tell, out that one. Tell me this about Wonka, because my granddaughter, who's coming up on eight, uh, but she, she loves Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the original, not so much the mm-hmm. second one with Depp. Uh, and, and, and I'm wondering how woke is it? Because that's the stuff that just gets under my skin. I agree. I didn't see anything woke in the story at all, honestly. Uh, fun music, nothing amazing, nothing you're going to be singing out of the theater. But I thought it was a charming story that didn't distract with messages. It was more about uh, being yourself and reaching for a dream and, and those kind of universal themes that I don't think anyone can object to. See, those are the things I like because she she absolutely. Oh, and I saw we should mention the passing. The lady who played the mom in Mary Poppins. I know that goes back a long ways. She just passed away this week. She made it all the way to 100. She was a suffragette in the movie, believe it or not, in Mary Poppins. And she made it all the way to 100. And uh, her passing was marked, I think, a day or two ago. Yeah. And also, I believe we just lost David Soul. From yeah. Starsky and Hutch, I uh, didn't. I that one took me about. I mean, older gentleman. He's eighty now, but uh, yeah, listen. I, part of that classic seventies lineup of cop shows, and people loved it. And uh, you know, I don't think he did an enormous amount after that. He did some. He was in Salem's Lot, but uh, you know, when when a, when a character is so iconic, you have to give a lot of credit to the stars who make it possible. Absolutely, Christian. Thanks very much, and uh, have a have a wonderful weekend. Thanks, you too. That is Christian Toto from the. As coming up in a moment, Colorado and Maine disqualifying Trump from the 2024 ballot. The Supreme Court has now agreed to hear the case. Should Democrats and anti-Trump voters get to dictate if he can even be on the ballot? You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Senator John Kennedy gets it. Mr. President, you just got to try harder not to suck. Well said, Mr. Kennedy. We agree. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program on First Amendment Friday. Glad to be with you and always glad to take your phone calls and emails. There is a weird phenomena going on in America right now, and it's being driven by the political left, by Democrats. I know you're going to say, Lars, you don't like anything the Democrats do. Well, uh, generally that's true. But lately, uh, they've gone crazy. 16 lawsuits saying take Trump off the ballot in various states around America. And now we've got a couple of petitions, groups of voters, I imagine not Trump fans, in Illinois and Massachusetts who've actually filed motions to remove Donald Trump from the 2024 ballot. I thought we'd talk about it with somebody who actually has some legal knowledge, and that's Jeff Clark, former United States Deputy Attorney General. Mr. Clark, welcome back. Uh, well, Lars, great to be here. And uh, look, you know, what's going on with this attempt to keep President Trump off the ballot is uh, – is truly nonsense, or, or let me paraphrase uh, the famous philosopher Jeremy Bentham. You know, it's it's hypocrisy on stilts <laughs> because the Democrats are saying that uh, they're the pro democracy party, that democracy is on the ballot, 
uh, this time in 2024 for the presidential election. But they're the ones who are trying to throw their major political opponent who has the best chance to win. and looks like he's going to sweep through these primaries or virtually all of them off the ballot. And that is profoundly anti-democratic. And they seem not to see that the contradiction in what they're doing. And, in, and the Colorado decision is the one that's probably poised to be taken up by the Supreme Court. In fact, there may already be uh, a result on that just inside the walls of the Supreme Court. Um, you know, if they it's up for conference today, usually uh, things come up for conference on Fridays and then they're announced on an orders list on Mondays. Uh, but, you know, this is urgent enough. It's possible they could do an earlier announcement. But certainly we should watch for the news on on Monday. Um, and, you know, we're seeing this replicated, as you were noting, in, in a variety of states. And then, you know, over the Christmas break, we saw it replicated in Maine, not even by a court, but by this uh, official, the state uh, secretary of state in Maine, Shenna Bellows. So it's it's become epidemic at this point. Okay, can we take both the primary and the general a a little bit separately? Because I wanted to ask you this. In America, we have a little bit of weird collision between public and private, and that is parties nominate candidates. And that's a private matter. The Republican Party is a private group. The Democrat Party is a private group, although most of their followers work in government. So it gives them an in that maybe Republicans don't have as much. But does... Does the state have the right, once it's agreed to hold a primary election, to then say to a private group, the Republicans of, say, the state of Colorado, you're not allowed to have that candidate on the ballot? Because, you know, I I don't know that there would be a mechanism for the Republican Party, the Democrat Party to hold its own sort of election. So they do it through the state. So it's a little bit of a joint effort between public and private. But uh, once it becomes part of a function of a state to hold a primary election to help a private political party choose its standard bearer, does the state have the right to dictate who they can have on on the list and who they can't? So let me do a little bit of on the one hand, on the other hand. Sure. Uh, Lars, so look, um, you know, there are two cert petitions up now in front of the Supreme Court, one from the Colorado Republican Party and another one from Trump himself as the you know key candidate in question. Right. And in those cert petitions, one of the arguments actually is that the rights of association of the party are being violated by what the Colorado Supreme Court did. So there's certainly an argument to be made that, uh, you know, that this power that they're purporting to exercise in Colorado doesn't exist because it would trench into the into the First Amendment. But certainly, you know, there's been, and this is the other hand part, um, you know, there's been a history of uh, state law involvement in, you know, uh, political parties. And, you know, it, as many observers have recognized, right, it, it sort of biases toward a binary election between a Republican and a Democrat, right? It's a lot harder to get a third party, fourth party, et cetera, off the ground. Sure. In the U.S., I mean, we do have you know Libertarian Party, we do have a Green Party, et cetera, but they tend not to be uh, to, you know get a lot of votes. They tend at, at best to be kind of spoilers for one side or the other. So, you know, there there is a role for state law you know to play, uh, but I do think it's very serious when you have one party trying to disqualify the major candidate and likely the chosen candidate for the other side. That's a profound new question and and uh, we're going to see what the Supreme Court's going to do with it I think. Okay, Jeff, do you see any likelihood at all that there won't be four justices on the US Supreme Court saying we need to hear this thing 
Uh, do you think there's any chance? I mean, they do shove cases aside and deny the writ of certiorari. So do you see any chance that the Supreme Court is going to say, no, nah, we're not going to hear it. We'll let Colorado decide on its own. I think they're going to hear one of these cases, right? I don't think anyone can predict with certainty exactly which one they're going to hear. And the courts are playing, you know, or the decision makers, since, you know, Shanna Bellows, the main secretary of state, tried to do the same thing. They're playing games with issuing decisions and then immediately staying them, which shows that they don't have the courage of their own convictions, right? If they really wanted to throw President Trump off the ballot, throw him off the ballot, and then let ordinary, you know, state processes kick in, where basically it requires you to go to the court first and then say, hey, can you stay your own order? You should. This is an important issue. Uh, but, you know, you have to cross a certain threshold of proof on that. you got to meet a four-factor test usually. Um, and then you go to the – if you don't get satisfaction from them, then you go to the Supreme Court. First, you go to the circuit justice, especially if it's really urgent, and then the circuit justice can give you either the relief or usually the circuit justice refers it to the full court, and then the full court votes. But sometimes, you know, the, the circuit justice will put in a kind of temporary stay or an administrative stay to hold things over till the full court can consider it. So weirdly, that's not happening here. You have the Colorado Supreme Court and the Maine Secretary of State both putting in stays. And the Colorado stay is really peculiar because it provided that it would automatically be stayed if anyone uh, petitioned for review by the Supreme Court, so-called filing for cert, before January 4th. So you know, that, that continuing stay was triggered by the Colorado Republican Party, not even by Trump. So you know, you get to ask questions like, why is this happening? Uh, you know, what? why don't they just tee it up in the ordinary course and then see what happens in, in, in the state? And I've also seen reference to issues, Lars, about, you know, is Trump already going to be on the ballot, essentially? Because, you know, they have to send them, uh, you know, they have to do administrative things before the ballot's actually uh, ready and the election's coming right up. So it looks like it's a kind of political statement by these uh, these bodies you know, to just try to dirty up Trump in the course of trying to win the, the election for the Democrats. Well, I, I certainly hope they recognize that they're actually building support for Trump. I'm already a Trump supporter, but there are a lot of people who are saying if that they're going to go after him this way. Let me ask you one last issue. The Colorado Supreme Court determined that Donald Trump was guilty of insurrection. Well, insurrection is a federal crime. Doesn't yes. doesn't there have to doesn't there have to be evidence and a trial and due process for the Colorado Supreme Court to declare a person guilty of a federal crime? Yes. And, uh, you know, the issue of the lack of due process with this super hurry up ruling, which even violated Colorado law, you know, there are time limits that weren't even met. They wouldn't let President Trump, uh, you know, depose witnesses or really put on his own witnesses. It was all structured to be a one-way railroad based on just taking the January 6th report as a given, uh, as if it, that was a neutral process, and it's not. Um, and, you know, the the whole issue uh, that you're raising is also an issue of whether the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is self-executing or not, or whether it essentially is something that can only be confirmed by a follow-on legal process, like bringing criminal charges under federal law for insurrection which never happened. That's Jeff Clark. Jeff, thanks very much, and Happy New Year to you. Jeff is a former U.S. Deputy Attorney General. We'll be back in a moment. It's First Amendment Friday. We'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. 
Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. Check me out on Instagram. And, of course, check us out on all other social media as well. words from President Reagan. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. We the people are the driver. The government is the car. And we decide where it should go. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Go ahead. Let's play that KJP soundbite, please. And I'll take a step back for a second. In the last two years, uh, almost three years now, the president has done more, more in the last three years than some presidents had done in two terms, Mika, in two terms. Unbelievable. Now, that is Corinne Jean-Pierre. She certainly earns her $200,000 a year trying to explain her boss's many, many gaffes. She is the press secretary for Joe Biden. And she says this president has done more for Americans than some presidents do in two terms. Well, the new job numbers are out. And in a moment, I want to share a couple of thoughts on what they actually mean. Most of the legacy media is saying, look at this great news for Joe Biden's economy. Well, I'll give you a couple of other pieces of data to go with that, and then you can make up your own mind. In the meantime, it's First Amendment Friday. Your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And as always, naysayers go straight to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can vote in our X poll, used to be called Twitter. The X poll can be found at Lars Larson Show. You can find the same question at LarsLarson.com. Hey, Jim, welcome to the program. What makes you a naysayer today? And welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. So, you know, I, I listen to your show as much as I possibly can and agree with you, like, and good Lord, 95% of the time. Thank you. Um, but it's regarding Trump. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm with you. I'd love to see him back in there. But I don't think he has a chance of, of winning. I mean, I look back at 2016 and you look at, you know, do you believe it was a nefarious election? 2020, you mean? Or Yes, I'm sorry. 2020, yeah, 2020 was a fraudulent election. And some of the proof of that, so it's not just me saying that, is an awful lot of the states that were the battleground states changed their election laws specifically to cut down on the opportunities to cheat. Now, if if, if right. you believed the Biden administration saying it was the most perfect election ever held in American history, bar none, then why would the states, which are empowered by the Constitution to set the, the laws for elections, why would they change their laws if they already had a perfect product? Well, that's that's kind of my point. It's like, okay, so and then you believe, you know, I, I watched the 2000 mules and yeah, there was stuff going on. But the question is, you know, what is going to stop them from doing it again? You no, know, no, OK, number, number mules, one, you've got 5000 mules. No, but the, um, the number one, number one will be the fact that you have new laws in states that forbid a lot of what was done to cheat in 2020. That's number one. Number two, they won't have the excuse of the pandemic, although I wouldn't put it past Joe Biden and his buddies 
to try, you know, something else, some kind of health scare, because they've been trying health scares ever since the end of the pandemic. And they keep saying COVID is coming back. And then a few weeks later, they seem to have forgotten about it because nobody's buying that stuff anymore. That's number two. Number three, I think Trump's team was not dialed in as well as it should have been for the cheating that happened, because what happened was they fumbled a lot of the cases Uh, A lot of them were made by outside parties, not by the Trump campaign. I think this time around, Trump's lawyers are primed. When they start to see cheating going on, like sending out ballots to people who aren't entitled to receive them, sending out ballots by mail where people are not entitled to, and there was a lot of that that happened in 2020, they're going to walk right into court and say, Your Honor, they're sending out ballots illegally. You can't even allow those ballots to be counted. That should have happened in 2020. It did not. And you could fault the GOP, you could fault Trump, whatever. The point is, this time, they're ready for it. And here's the other thing. You know, when it's close, you can cheat. And if you notice, the total number of votes in six states, the six states that made all the difference in the Electoral College, do you know what the total number of votes was that differentiated uh, Trump from Biden? Uh, Not off the top of my head, no. Okay, so this is six states with decent-sized populations. It was 144,000. It was about an average of about 22,000 votes in each state. Now, that's that's Uh a pipsqueak amount. So you say, and we used to say, if it's close, they can't, if it ain't close, they can't cheat. Uh, Because you say, if you have a broad win, well, right now, Trump is already, if they held the election today, most of the polls, when you average them out, say that Donald Trump would slam Joe Biden down by 3%, maybe even 4%. That's a huge lead for because being the incumbent president is always an advantage in elections. Incumbents win very reliably. And Joe Biden has all these headwinds against him. The economy stinks. The government is running up deficits that are twice as big this year as last year. You've got a war going in Ukraine that Joe Biden can't even explain. You had the disaster of Afghanistan. You had all these things going on. And even if they stage a bunch of Antifa and BLM riots this summer, and and I I wouldn't say they've taken that off the books either, even with all that, Trump goes in. If, if, if the win is tight in some states, they can get away with cheating. But your point is, if the Democrats are certain to win any presidential election because they're going to cheat, then it doesn't matter whether it's Trump or somebody else. And then my next right. question would be, if you say, well, Trump can't win because they're going to cheat, then nobody can win. Well, then if you didn't use Trump, who would you use? Because right now, about 58% of Republicans want Donald Trump, including me. I'm a partisan, so I've, I've got a bias. Well. I've got a dog in the fight. We want Trump to be the nominee. Who's his closest competition? Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley down in the teens? So in other words, you'd have the Republican Party telling Americans, not only are the Democrats telling you who you can't vote for, the Republican Party is going to tell you you can't vote for Trump. You have to vote for either Nikki Haley, who's really a terrible candidate, or, or Ron DeSantis. And, and the majority of you, the 70 or 80 percent of you, don't want one or the other of those. Who do you put up to run against Biden? That's, sure, that's a sure loss. So why yeah, go that I, direction? I agree with that. I, I, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I just look and it just seems like, you know, they get away with whatever they want to do. You know, the media, you know, the media, all this other stuff. And, you know, a Democrat is never held responsible for anything that I can see. I mean, I, I totally I totally agree with you. Something, but it's like these people are just out of their minds. I mean, you, you can find um, you know, dozens of examples. Inslee, you know, there are dozens of examples in the last two years 
where if you're a Democrat and you do something, there's no punishment at all. Hunter Biden, for example, or, or other examples you can give. You're somebody else like the pro-life father who ends up with an FBI SWAT team on his front porch because he shoved somebody during a pro-life rally where an adult was threatening his 12-year-old kid. I mean, and he gets a SWAT team. You know, did they send a SWAT team yeah. to Hunter Biden's house to, to raid the documents for a guy who's a yeah, thoroughgoing? Yeah, CNN there and, and all of that filming while it's all going oh, on. Oh, yeah, because CNN gets a heads up so they can be there. You have a, a SWAT raid on Trump's house. You have a SWAT tra- raid on Roger Stone's house. You have all these over-the-top actions. And now we know that his family was involved in all this criminal activity. I think the thing is the headwinds are against him. The Democrats would like to dump him if they could, but they can't figure out how to kick him to the curb and kick Kamala Harris to the curb at the same time and then find somebody other than that nitwit Gavin Newsom who's made a train wreck out of California to run instead of one of the two of those. So Trump's going to win this year. You just watch. Uh, watch. And the Democrats, yeah, they'll cheat and they're going to lose. The Lars Glad to be Larson on Show. Amendment Friday. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. the health we're all on our it's friday friday welcome to first amendment friday on the lars larson show thank god it's friday today lars puts you in the driver's seat you talk about what you want to talk about government is the problem no topic is off limits we will make america great again call 866 hey lars that's 866 hey lars to speak your mind now first amendment friday with lars larson welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you and i'm always glad to get your calls and i'm getting a lot of interest about an interview that i did with a young lady she's a grandmother and her grandson was shot in the face by another kid no no provocation there uh, uh th- nothing that would have justified shooting somebody in the face now it happened to be a bb gun instead of a conventional firearm but it took the young boy's eye out in fact the the doctors that have been working on him this happened last fall uh are not convinced that he'll even keep the eyeball itself the eye may literally as the doctors apparently said die and at that point they'll have to remove the eye from his head and what does the kid who shot him in the face get he gets a month in detention and some probation and then uh, when he reaches uh, his 20s he'll have his entire record wiped out and there will be no legal record that says he was ever convicted of a crime he pleaded guilty already uh, apparently they worked a deal and uh, sometimes I agree with plea deals, sometimes I do not. But in any case, I want to get to your calls. I want to get to some of the emails about that as well. And I'm glad to take your calls as well, especially on a Conspiracy Theory Thursday. So if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And of course, naysayers go to the head of the line. Always have, always will on this program. And if you want to vote in our X poll, uh, used to be called Twitter, now it's called X, uh, at Lars Larson Show is the location. If Joe Biden won't stop the illegal alien invasion, should Republicans shut down the government? I would answer yes to that. There are Republicans like Andy Biggs of Arizona who have already said shut the border down or shut the government down, one or the other. Joe Biden has not seen fit to actually gain control of the border. We have literally millions of illegal aliens flooding into America. In the month of December alone, the most recent month for which we have numbers, 303,000 illegal aliens, 
that the Border Patrol knows about. Those are the ones they encountered. That doesn't count the gotaways. It also doesn't count all the illegal aliens that they have good reason to believe crossed and were never seen by the Border Patrol. But at least 303,000 on an annual basis, that'd be three and a half million illegal aliens in 2024, this year. On top of the nine million who've already come in under Joe Biden, and Joe Biden doesn't seem willing to change his tune. And you've got the Congress that's already said we're moving forward with impeachment of the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. Uh, Mayorkas is saying, oh, no, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, we've got it under control. And he calls the border situation broken. In any case, I want to get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Let's go first to Adam. Hey, Adam, welcome to the program. What's on your mind today? Hey, thanks, Lars, and thanks for what you do. So, hey, this Epstein list, and forgive me if you've answered this already because yeah. I've missed a few minutes of your show. So what that these people were on this flight? Let's take Bill Clinton, for instance, 70-some-odd times on this flight. He just has to get up and say, okay, I didn't have relations with anybody. I mean, he did it 30 years ago when they had proof that he did it back then. Right? <laughs> he, could give this, so, he could shake his finger at Americans and say, I did not have sex with any of Jeffrey Epstein's I did not trafficked have relations children. With woman. I did right. not have sex. So, so why? What are, what's the big hubbub about this list? I mean, public shame or, or what? These, these people don't have shame. You know, they don't care about that. It seems no. like it can only hurt people like Trump. It, no, but it doesn't hurt Trump. Be I mean, on the, guess list. The, the point I was trying to make about Trump being on the list was this. He is mentioned four times, but the mentions come down to, did he ever get, and they use this code word, massage. Uh, apparently Epstein would tell his madam, sure. Ghislaine Maxwell, make sure that so-and-so gets a massage. And they meant it in quote marks like, okay, that's sex. Except they weren't using the word sex, they'd call it a massage. And he didn't get one of those, according to the young women who were part of Jeffrey Epstein's gigantic number of victims. So that's one thing. Second thing, was he ever on the airplane? No. And that's part of what was said in the documents that were released. What did he ever go to Sex Island, this island that he owned, uh, that Epstein owned? Oh, I and thought the answer had, is I, no. I thought, I thought he was on there technically flying to Florida. That's not accurate. Well, okay. he never went to the island, but he's on the list. I'm just saying the he's, list. He's on the list as having flown on the plane. Oh, and, no, and I think one of the mentions, and I will tell you this because I spent a lot of hours reading this stuff last night. There's not, and I won't say I read all 950 pages. Uh, I'm sure. old enough that I'd, I don't have that many hours, even if I stayed up all night. But one was a mention that was there because Epstein said, oh, for whatever reason, weather or something else, they couldn't land at one airport in the New York area. He said, fine, we'll land at so, so and so and we'll go to Trump's club and stay there because he was still a member of Trump's, uh, you know, a bunch of, of golf clubs before Trump yeah. kicked him out. And I thought that was an important point, too. People forget. They say Epstein knew Trump. Yes, true. Epstein was a member of Trump's club. True. And then the day came about a decade before Trump came down that escalator and announced he was running for president where he Trump found out that Epstein had been, uh, you could use a lot of terminology for it, putting the moves on a 16-year-old girl who was the daughter of one of the members of the club. And uh, and Trump found out about it from his staff. They came to him and said, hey, Ep this Epstein creep is put, is, is uh, you could call it flirting, you call it, uh, you know, hitting on, whatever you want to call it. He was, he was trying to, you know, flirt with a 16-year-old girl. 
And Trump said, kick him out. And the reason I made the point right. about the cost of the club is when you pay $200,000 to belong to a club and then 20000 a year, if the club kicks you out, you're likely to be able to sell your membership. He wanted him out of there, even if it cost him money. And so, and, and the people who will tell you Epstein was a member of Trump's club, they want to make the connection to Trump. But it's actually a positive story because the minute Trump found out that Epstein was even doing something like hitting on a 16-year-old girl, by itself, disgusting and tawdry behavior, but not illegal. He wasn't having sex with her. He was hitting on her. But he said, I won't have somebody here who's behaving like that, kicked him out immediately. And people forget that liberals and the Democrats forget to mention that. Well, that's, I guess, that's my, getting back to the crux of my question is, is in my view, from my non-legal stance, nothing's going to happen to these people because they're not. So they took a flight on a plane and say, again, 70 sometimes to Lolita Island. We know what happened, you know, but they're not going to prove anything. These people aren't going to get in trouble no, in any way, shape or but form. I, I guess they're at the end of the day, at the end of the day, if the least if at least you can identify them as having been perverts, even if they'll never be convicted, okay. never, never have anything happen to them legally. But if you say we're going to call you out as what you are. And if that that keeps you out of political office or it keeps you from or, or if people I mean, recently we've seen Harvard, you know, with its behavior, a bunch of big companies said we're not hiring any student that comes out of that place. Now, that's part okay. of what public shaming does is sometimes people will say, I want nothing to do with that person. Oh, okay. Tina, okay. Tina okay. and I have done right. that. Well, we, had a, we, we had a person who was a friend of ours who ended up going to prison and we knew nothing about his crimes. They were financial crimes. But we said, look. You know, if you're going to be involved in that kind of stuff, we don't want anything to do with you whatsoever. And at least it could have that effect. Adam, thanks for the call. Glad to get your calls and glad to have you listening to The Lars Larson Show. Senator John Kennedy on the Washington establishment. The Washington establishment is working harder than an ugly stripper to cover up whatever happened. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a First Amendment Friday. First, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. If you want to send an email instead, talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our poll on X. Uh, used to be called Twitter. Now it's the X. So uh, we're calling it the poll on X. I got to tell you something. The, uh, I think there's a reason that Joe Biden and the Democrats are so panicked that they're throwing everything they can at Donald Trump. Take him off the ballot, disqualify him legally. Let's see if we can get him. I mean, just uh, today, Letitia James of New York is saying that she wants a $370 million fine against Donald Trump for alleged corruption in the city of New York. In other words, 
everything they can come up with to try to stop him, except, of course, a good candidate in the form of Joe Biden. So I thought we'd talk to Avita Duffy, who's a staff writer at The Federalist and co-founder of The Chicago Thinker, about some of the changes in who plans to vote for Joe Biden in the coming election. Avita, welcome back and Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. Sounds like uh, Slow Joe, as I call him, has uh, is not doing so well among uh, a, whole, a whole bunch of groups, including young people, young women, and uh, uh, both Black Americans and Hispanic Americans. He's he's losing ground in all those areas. Yeah, I think the the foundational reason with all these groups is is a hundred percent the economy. I think people feel the difference with what 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 was their. Uh, what, what their finances were like under Trump versus what they've been like with Biden. And for young people especially, they're going out into the world, they're starting lives and families, trying to buy a home, advance in their career, and that has become extremely difficult under Bidenomics. And then you have another thing with young people, which is the conflict in, in uh, Israel and with Hamas. Many of them, because they've been indoctrinated in, in their young adult years in college, have viewed this conflict exclusively through the prism of Mark the presser. And because they have this very narrow view of the world, um, they've applied it to this conflict and, and, and view the Palestinians as the perpetual victims. And Joe... Uh, you know, Avita, it sounded like your phone cut out for a moment and I missed a couple of your comments because you were saying their concern, they've been indoctrinated to the point of view that says there are oppressed people and oppressors and the oppressed people are always right in whatever case, and that would include the the Gazans and and Hamas. I missed a bit because I think your phone dropped out. Yes, no worries. I, I hope it's better now. But but yeah, that that's the gist of it. And so I think that is another huge reason why a lot of uh, young people are really um, disenchanted with the Biden administration. Uh, not they don't you know, it dropped out again, Evita. I'm sorry, it dropped out again, but. I'm curious, before we lose you all together, I wanted to ask you about this. The drop seems really dramatic. I mean, June of last year to the end of last month, so the end of December, six months, he has 18 to 29-year-old likely female voters, who I would guess as a, as a group would be more likely to vote Democrat. They went from 60% support of Biden to 42% in just six months. I mean, this is this is an extraordinary number. Uh, young young women are some of the most is one of the most reliable voting blocks Democrats uh, have, and that they are are swinging maybe not to Trump, but against Joe Biden uh, is really really bad news for Democrats. Even if they stay home from the polls, it could be enough to change this election cycle because of how drastically they went in support of Joe Biden in 2020, which we know was such a a close race. Well, and in fact, when I looked at younger voters, 18 to 29-year-old men and women who said they voted in the 2020 election, only 49% say they definitely will be voting in the next election, even though they turned out in droves for the last election. What? What is that, again, just primarily the economy? You know, I think we're, I think we're going to have a few phone problems. Joel, see if we can get uh, Avita to a better line. And in the meantime, let me pull up Norman. Hey, Norman, welcome to First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Hi, Lars. Hey, I just heard uh, your comment about the Supreme Court taking up this case uh, in a month from now. Yep. And what I was wondering is, do you think that since uh, Donald Trump appointed 
some of the justices that the Democrats will try to say they have to recuse themselves. I know he was confirmed by Congress, but would they uh, try to pull that out of their hat to try to say they have to recuse themselves because there's a conflict of interest there? Well, I, I'll tell you right now that Democrats say all kinds of crazy things, and they may make that argument. Well, that's but, but, but based on that argument, you, you, then every time there's any case that involves a president, or in this case a former president, then, then large numbers or at least a couple of the justices would have to recuse themselves. I don't think that's going to be a good legal argument, but I'm not a lawyer. I'll tell you what, we'll ask a lawyer and see if we can find out. Evita, did we get to, to a more solid line? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, absolutely. So tell me this. What's, um, wh- what do you think Joe Biden does? Uh, I mean, he gave a speech today, and he, apparently he was kind of on fire, as much as Joe Biden can ever be on fire, uh, about some subjects. But he seems to be willing to condemn large segments of Americans, you know, by saying these are people who don't agree like us, except that he's, by his description, he's talking about maybe half or better of the entire American population. Yeah, so he he's reverted now to really divisive and, frankly, frightening rhetoric to say you have to vote for me because your friends and neighbors who are more conservative, they're actually dangerous. They're domestic terrorists. And this is what his administration has been doing since he took office. The DOJ has been not only targeting Trump, but anybody on the right. You're a pro-lifer. You're a traditional Catholic. Joe Biden uh, is after you. But now he's putting it in much more explicit words as we're coming to the election, into this election cycle uh, to make things clear for his voters. I frankly don't think that that divisiveness is going to be uh, is going to be very effective with people. I think that they're sick of that. They hear they they've been hearing all the time how how awful uh, and divisive Trump is, and now they think it's going to be a winning strategy with Biden. I'm not sure if that's so true. And the other thing is, Joe Biden has made a lot of promises to young people. He has said, "I'm going to forgive your student loans. The economy is going to look up." He hasn't pulled through for them, and I think a lot of them are are really. Uh, upset and, and, and frankly feel betrayed by, by him uh, and his promise to be a radical leftist with this, with this conflict in Hamas and Israel. He, he has really, really uh, not, not pulled through with, for young people. I mean, so what's he going to do? Uh, can he throw an American ally, a good American ally like Israel under the bus and say, OK, we're not going to support them in their fight against terrorism while still making noises about terrorism elsewhere, saying I don't approve of terrorism unless it's in Israel, in which case it's OK to mollify the Palestinian supporters on the Democrat side of the aisle? No, I mean, he, he is in a terrible position because he has he has donors and politicians and supporters of his who want him to support Israel, which is what the United States has traditionally done. But then he has young people who are a solid voting bloc of his, or used to be, who are very much on the side of the Palestinians, who believe that America is aiding genocide in Israel and Palestine. And, and so these are, these are really extreme, uncompromising sides that Joe Biden has to try and appease both. I don't see how, how it's going to work. I, I really, he's in a very tough spot. The best he can hope for, I think, is hopefully come, you know, the election cycle, come November, people have a short memory, and maybe the conflict will be solved and America will have removed itself from the situation. But unless that happens, and it happens soon, uh, he, he is in trouble. I'm talking to Evita Duffy, who's a staff writer of The Federalist, co-founder of The Chicago Thinker, last one because it got less than a minute. So tell me this. Are you confident Joe Biden is going to get the nomination from the Democrat Party, or do they find with all his troubles, it's better we got to kick him to the curb between now and summer? I am confident Democrats, uh, Republicans, we have a lot of complaints about the establishment right, but they actually have 
have allowed the people to to decide their candidates much more freely than Democrats have. Democrats have a stronghold in their party. They are they have done everything they can to destroy RFK, the only real formidable candidate against Joe Biden. He's not going to be on the ballot. Um, he's actually, you know, he's rescinded himself and is trying to run as independent. Joe Biden is going to be the candidate. The only thing that will stop his uh, reelection effort is, frankly, if he dies in office. Yeah, and that's, that is, of course, a possibility. That's Avita Duffy from the Chicago Thinker and the Federalist. Avita, thanks very much, and Happy New Year to you. I'll get to your calls in the next segment. It's a pleasure to be with you. First Amendment Fridays are always fun. 866-HEY-LARS. Emails talk at LarsLarson.com. The Lars Larson Show. men and the people who love He has small town politics with big town opinions. This is the Lars Larson show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson show. It's a pleasure to be with you and I'll get back to your phone calls and emails. It is First Amendment Friday after all. But if you are concerned as I am about the influence of money in elections. Now, I like it when Americans can give to the candidate of their choice. But I get concerned when major institutions become major forces, especially when they have a dog in the fight. And in this case, I'm talking about America's universities. Men, some of them, a few of them, are private universities, but the vast majority are state institutions. And guess what they do? They have faculty members that are almost universally far-left liberals. And I can back that up with the numbers. And then what do those far-left liberals do? Well, there's a really disturbing trend that universities are becoming some of the biggest political contributors to campaigns through their staff members. And I thought we'd talk about that with Jen Cabani. Uh, you're familiar with Jen because she's been on the show so many times. She's an editor with The College Fix. And since it's her first time in 2024, Happy New Year, Jen. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. So what do we know, and I don't care if you use some specific examples from my neck of the woods, what do we know about the contributions of American academics, the folks who are indoctrinating America's college-age kids? Uh, what are they doing with their political dollars? Well, I can tell you, across the nation it's bad, but in Oregon it's much worse. In general, between 60% to 80% of college faculty donations nationwide go to Democrats. Oregon is a way above normal. Uh, we're finding 95 to 98% of all political donations made by faculty members in Oregon are going to Democrats. So and it's, it's, it's a big problem. <laughs> and, and lest anybody think that this is small amounts of money, because I think sometimes, Jen, until we had the most recent experience of seeing uh, Ms. Gay be fired as, as the uh, president of Harvard and found out she was making $900,000 a year, some people might think of these poor academics sitting down there sweating away trying to educate your kids and and they're pulling down you know salaries that aren't that aren't very big at all in fact college professors make fairly large uh, six-figure some even seven-figure salaries and so they have a lot of money to give to politics so what's happened to their donations recently yeah, well, we have, uh, we track, because when you give a political donation, it is public. I think by last count, uh, 
faculty in Oregon gave $7 million in the last political cycle. So what you're seeing is they are not only trying to affect change by what they teach in the classroom, but they're putting their money where their mouth is and giving to Democrat po- uh, politicians. So that means that if, if I'm right, in 2020, Democrats went to, what, $1.2 million in giving, and then it went from that to $7 million? So there's been a gigantic increase in giving from from academics, from uh, college professors, to, for lack of a better term, uh, to, to political parties and specifically to Democrats. Yeah, because they are true believers. I mean, you have to understand scholars that teach at your, you know, Oregon universities and across the nation. This isn't just a, a vocation or a job. I mean, they are using their classrooms, using their salaries, using everything they can to affect change, the change they want to see in America. And frankly, it's working. Yeah, if you went back to 2016, the total amount given by the group you were describing, $209,000, and I think less than 500 bucks to the Republicans, but 209000 to the Democrats, then it went up sixfold, 600%, to $1.2 million, and then in the most recent cycle, $7 million, or three, almost four times that number, or more than four times that number? It's incredible, but it just shows how dedicated leftist scholars are to seeing the changes they want to see they'll they'll start when you send johnny or susie to college and and hope that they come back with an education and and possible future and then they come back and they're depressed and they're angry and they're mad at everyone and you have your you know your tuition dollars to thank and now they're giving all this money to political politicians that they want to see help continue the change that they've started in the classroom and speaking of that, when I say they're giving most of their money to Democrats, they actually give to the parties, but they also give uh, to individual candidates as well. And I thought that was kind of instructive when you say, well, who exactly are they giving to? Joe Biden, of course, was one. But then the rest of the list sounds like the far left end of the already left wing Democrat Party. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, then also to uh, I think there was one other. No, it was Liz Warren, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden getting the, the, the lion's share of all of the money. Yeah, I mean, they, this is something that we have to understand, that when you're sending your child to school, I mean, when you're sending them to school in Oregon, it's almost like they're I've heard it called it's like attending a democratic party summer camp basically when you're sending your kid to a college in oregon but I mean, we're, we're talking about you know a situation where it's a monoculture and it's reflected in these numbers where people say oh it's exaggerated you know that i'm sure there's intellectual diversity i'm sure there's and you know granted there's probably a couple of good professors but the vast majority the lion's share of these professors are liberal democrats and we can track that by we have the receipts when we look at their voting records which is public and we will look at their political donations which is also public so how is it that we ended up with such a far left uh, group of professors at american colleges and universities why why doesn't it reflect the population after all don't the universities say they believe in diversity and inclusion it doesn't sound like they include too many conservatives or republicans it, they, de- they definitely don't believe in intellectual diversity and the reason is because i think that progressives this is a, a like a belief system. It's almost like a religion. In some cases, it's like a cult. And so they, they are attracted to the vocation of teaching young minds because they see it as a means to an end to indoctrinate them. You know, they're, they're young, they're impressionable, they believe everything that they're saying. The students don't realize they're not getting both sides. And so I think that the professors that 
that go into this not to teach and not to instruct, but to actually convince and indoctrinate and brainwash are really doing this almost as like a, a belief system. Uh, they're passionate about it. And you can see by the donations, you see how they vote and you can see by the way this country is headed, unfortunately, because so many young people are falling for it hook, line and sinker. I just wonder how this works educationally, because I've always been curious about things. I read the left. I read the right. I have my own point of view on things, but I like to read what the other side has to say so that I can say, well, okay, is, uh, are they right about that? And, and if I test my own ideas, but when you send your kids to a college that's almost a hundred percent liberal Democrats and they, they exhibit that in, in the things they teach and the way they teach and they exhibit that in their political donations, which is a real practical way to, to measure it. How intellectually curious can a kid be after four years in that kind of ideological soup? Well, what the professors do is when they when they craft their class and they develop their syllabus and they develop their reading list, they're only choosing the books and the, and the studying that they want the students to do. Instead of giving a balanced approach to any topic, 90% of the reading assignments and the textbooks that the kids are given are all one side. So they, they, they're not given both sides of the story to, to allow the young people to decide which one makes more sense or which one you know sounds better. And it's a death by a thousand cuts, you know, so they get a day in and day out, weekend, Week, week in, month after month, semester after semester, four years of that and, and, and of one side, and they come out convinced that America is a horrible racist country. Yeah, and the, the only thing that they lose is they end up indoctrinated, but they don't end up being curious, saying, well, maybe the other side's right about this, you know, and, and looking at other subjects, because if the professor says there's only one way to look at this point, you know, at this particular subject or this area or this set of policies. If there's only one way to look at it, then why in the world would you ever look at the other side? Jen, I, we appreciate the work you do at the College Fix, and we always appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And a Happy New Year. That's Jen Cabani. Now, it's First Amendment Friday. Your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you happen to be a naysayer, I'm glad to take naysayers. Unlike the colleges and universities, I actually like hearing both sides of an argument. You can also send me emails, talk at LarsLarson.com, and vote in our X poll. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show and on my website at LarsLarson.com. And we accept votes from both sides of the aisle. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. of folks worry about their firearms, but Lars doesn't have to worry about Biden taking his guns. He stores them upstairs. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. We just got word the Supreme Court of the United States has announced it will take up the case involving the state of Colorado, I think both illegally and unconstitutionally, throwing Donald Trump off the primary election ballot in the state of Colorado. Word came down, the Supreme Court will decide whether or not President Donald Trump is eligible to run for president. The Supreme Court found of uh, Colorado found that he had violated the insurrection clause. And they did it without a trial, without evidence, without anything else. No due process, throw all that stuff out. The court comes down with a decision. We had heard that this might be the case. 
Uh, we had heard that they might actually issue their decision to hear the case today. Uh, they will actually hear the case on February the 8th. So they're going to hear it just over one month from now, which starts to push all kinds of timelines. Although, here's one of the things I hope. The Supreme Court says, we'll hear the case, we'll hear it. They've got to give the lawyers some time to write up the briefs on both sides. So that's between now and February, just a hair over one month from now. And they will then have to hear the case and fairly quickly decide it so they can meet the timelines of all the various states where there are challenges to Donald Trump being on the ballot. And uh, the Colorado decision only came about two weeks ago, December the 19th. And what they said was Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election results that led to the January 6th Capitol riot. They said that's the proof that he violated Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which was written in particular aimed at people who had taken part in the Civil War, saying if you took an active role in an insurrection against the United States government, you were disqualified from running for federal office, but also state office at the same time. And it says you're barred from from office because you violated your oath of office and engaged in insurrection. They managed to come up with this decision about Trump without actually giving him any kind of due process. Well, Trump's attorneys were arguing this. In our system of government, the people, of the people, by the people, and for the people, Colorado's ruling is not and cannot be correct. The question of eligibility, about who is eligible to run for president of the United States, is the decision that is, well, you have to meet the minimum criteria, three requirements of the U.S. Constitution. But that should be, it's properly reserved for Congress and not the state courts to consider and decide. So uh, the court has its hearing or has its uh, conference on Fridays, and ordinarily they would have announced on a Monday what they plan to do about that. But uh, what they argued was by considering the question of President Trump's eligibility and then barring him from the ballot, the Colorado Supreme Court arrogated Congress's authority. I think they're absolutely right about that. I've also pointed out that they appear to have found him guilty of insurrection, a charge, a criminal charge in America, because insurrection is a federal crime, uh, a charge that's never been brought by the Department of Justice. And believe me, I think that if the Joe Biden Department of Justice thought they had a snowball's chance of bringing a successful insurrection charge against Donald Trump, they'd have done it. I mean, Joe Biden and Merrick Garland would have brought those charges against Trump. They did not. The FBI would have investigated and found evidence that Donald Trump was involved in the insurrection. The FBI found, to the contrary, that he was not involved in the insurrection. And the other thing you should be aware of, just you know, my take on this, is that what Donald Trump did was he questioned the results of the election. Now, he questioned it forcefully and vigorously, but he did nothing more or less than what Joe Biden has done, what Hillary Clinton has done, what Barack Hussein Obama has done, what Stacey Abrams of Georgia have done, and so many other Democrats who have argued that various elections were invalid and that the winner of those elections was invalid. They did it and then some when it came to Trump about the 2016 election, and yet not one of them was charged with insurrection. And then to try to connect the events of January 6th, tomorrow is the anniversary, but the events of January 6th saying, because Donald Trump questioned the results of the elections, we got a riot at the Capitol. What would you think if somebody made the argument that because, because Joe Biden won in 2020, 
that the result was rioting and disturbances in American cities, both in the summer of 2020 and in the summer of 2021. It's a crazy argument to make. And to then say, well, then he's guilty of insurrection. We can decide that without doing anything else. So the U.S. Supreme Court just now has been has decided that it will hear the case, that the case will be heard on February the 8th. Uh, the, the lawyers will have a month to be able to put their arguments together. And then the Supreme Court, which notoriously does not decide cases very quickly at all, is going to have to come up with some kind of decision fairly quickly to tell the rest of the country because you have 16 states where lawsuits have been brought. In fact, the most recent ones in Massachusetts and in Illinois saying we want to take Trump off the ballot. It, I mean, to, for, for one thing, it says it speaks to me about the level of desperation of the political left in America. They'll all tell you that Donald Trump is a horrible candidate, except he's winning. They'll tell you he shouldn't be on the primary ballot, except that at this point, if the Republican Party was making a decision about who to have as its candidate for office, which is a private organization and a private decision about who should represent the GOP in America as the candidate for president in 2024, that decision would easily go to Donald Trump because he's got about 58 percent of the support in some polls, even more than that. And Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, nowhere near that. So you can see that the Democrats are desperate to keep him off the ballot because that's their only hope. Now, whether or not there's a chance that the U.S. Supreme Court would say, yeah, sure, Colorado, Maine, Illinois, Massachusetts, you can all take him off the ballot and tell the voters of those states you don't have any right to vote for this candidate. That's about as un-American as anything I can really imagine. To say, you're not allowed to vote for him. That's nuts. And it tells you that the Democrats have run out of options. And it does make me concerned. I actually had a, a caller to the show the other day who said, what are they going to do next? And I said, all of the other possible options to the Democrats as they get more and more desperate are really, really, truly ugly. I hope that Donald Trump has great security around him. I am a fan of Donald Trump. I believe that he made a great president. He will be a great president starting in January of next year. But could there be people out there who get desperate enough to try to take some other kind of illegal action to stop him? Yeah, I think that's very much a possibility. And we should consider whether or not Joe Biden, who basically went crazy today, gave a speech probably end up talking about it more on Monday than today because I haven't had a chance to see the whole speech. It happened while I was on the air. But you've got Joe Biden who's out saying, all these people who disagree with us, they're, uh, they're people who don't believe in our values. Well, the values of the Democrat Party? Yeah, if you want to talk to me about the values of the Democrat Party, I think I know what my answer to that would be. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. If you're a naysayer and you think that Donald Trump should be kept off the ballot, Glad to take that naysayer call as well. 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote the in our, Lars Larson Show. our website as well. Daisy was abandoned by 